So delight to be with you today. Uh, excited about being with Redemption City. Excited about what God is doing in your midst. And, and uh, just God is blessing you in amazing ways. I, I don't know how well you know your two pastors, but God has gifted them and prepared them in some unusual ways. They're wonderful men of God. Their families are awesome. I know you know that, but it's exciting to be a part of church where God has given so much, even at this early stage. About 25 years ago, I moved to uh, Sioux City, Iowa. And when we moved to Iowa, we had, I had been in Missouri for a number of years. My dad was in the Air Force, and we had lived all over the country, mostly in the Midwest, but we had been to the Philippines, and we had been to Montana and Alaska a couple times, but we had been all over the place. And when we came to Sioux City, I, I discovered the regional jokes Every region has got their own jokes. You, you probably realize that. If you've done any traveling at all, you'll find out that some of those jokes are the same in one region over the other. They just change the names to protect the innocent. For instance, the story I'm about to tell you, somebody told me one time that the Oli jokes in the north are really the same as the Bubba jokes in the south. And sometimes that's true, but not always. Usually there's a grain of wisdom found in some of them. I shouldn't necessarily say you usually, but occasionally anyway. One of my favorite stories is about Oli. You guys know Oli and Lena? Yeah, Oli lost his job, and so they had to relocate to a new community. And so he got a job in this community, but there was a problem. He didn't think it was too big of a problem, but there was a problem. You see, as you know, Oli was a Norwegian Lutheran. And this was a Catholic community where he was going to have to relocate. And they didn't have a Norwegian Lutheran church. But he thought, I've got to provide for my family. This will be all right. And so they moved to this community. And sure enough, everything was fine for four or five days until Friday. And Ole did what Ole always did all of his life. He got home from work on Friday. And he fired up his barbecue grill out back. And then he got these big, thick venison deer steaks out on the grill. And he popped those things on the grill. And as you can imagine, the smell of that meat just permeated the entire community. And people were immediately angry because every good Catholic knows you don't eat red meat on Friday. And so they, they were just beyond themselves uh, with anger and frustration, and so they immediately went to the priest in town, and they said, you've got to go talk to Oli. He's got to join our church. And so the next day, the priest shows up at Oli's house, and they have quite a discussion. And as the priest talks to Oli, he convinces him that since there's not a Norwegian Lutheran church in town, surely you've got to be a part of our church. And so Oli says, okay. And so they go through all of these classes, and Oli learns all kinds of stuff about the Catholic Church. And then finally, on one Sunday, they bring Oli up to the front of the church. And they get very formal and very serious. And there's a baptistry found over on the side. And the priest takes the water and he sprinkles it on Oli. And he says to Oli, Oli, you were born a Norwegian Lutheran. And Oli, you lived most of your life as a Norwegian Lutheran. And then he sprinkled some water on his head, but now you are a Catholic. Everybody rejoiced, problem solved, everybody was excited. So on Monday morning, the community is abuzz about everything's going to work out fine with this newcomer, Oli, in the community. Until Friday. And sure enough, 
Ole goes out and he starts up his barbecue grill. And everybody in the community is going, surely not. Ole knows better than this. He's been through the classes. He knows better than this. But surely so, in a few minutes, Ole pops the deer steaks on the grill. And the smell starts to permeate the community. And this time they're beside themselves in anger. And so they run to the fence. They're about in mob mentality going to remove Ole from his backyard and tear him limb from limb. When they see him standing at the barbecue grill, very formally and very seriously, and he's got a hand in his hand a can of seasoning salts, and he says, You were born a whitetail, and you lived all of your life as a whitetail. And then he took the sprinkling salts over and he sprinkled it over, but now, now you are a walleye. <laughs> you know, for some people, that's about what it matters when it comes to church. Some people, and even in our respective communities and, and of different backgrounds, it's about a baptism somewhere. And then it doesn't matter whatever happens after that point. And they consider that doing church. Redemption City is going to be a different kind of church. It's not going to look like the Oli joke where we just gather and we do a few formalities once in a while and we say we believe some things, but we don't live those things. Doing church God's way, the biblical way, is much, much more radical than that. You probably have a thousand expectations in this room of what that looks like. But together you will look to God's Word and you will look to the leadership of the Lord here in this place and you will step forward into your future to be God's church in this community in a very serious fashion. That's what this is about today. Gathering here in this place and making a serious commitment to God and to each other that here in this place, church is going to look different. It's going to be more meaningful than perhaps what it is in some other places. You make serious commitments today to do church God's way. So if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, open them up to Romans chapter 12. This is going to be one of those washing with water of the word sermons. I compared notes earlier in the week and talked to Adam, and last week he preached one verse, I think, if I understood it properly, three verses. And... Uh, we happened to be talking about the same thing, but my context was a little bit bigger. I did 12 verses on the same theme as Adam did last week. There are times where we need that kind of in-depth teaching, but sometimes we have to broaden out and get the big picture too. And when we see the big picture, then the details can be added in to make sense. And so today as we look at Romans chapter 12, we're going to read every word in this chapter together. We're not going to spend, obviously, a lot of time at each word. But this passage largely speaks to us very clearly. It doesn't need much of a preacher to stand in front of it. You will understand what God is saying to you as a, as a body of Christ here in this place. I call this God's plan for doing church. And I break it up in four fashions that come pretty clearly straight out of the text for us. The first one is introduced to us in the first verse, and we'll look more in depth at this in a moment. We first, as a body, have to learn to die to self. What we do here in this place, we enter into a relationship with Jesus Christ, and we die to self, and he makes that very clear to us, not just in Romans uh, chapter 12, but throughout the Scriptures. Secondly, we make a commitment to being transformed. 
We don't just come before the Father die to self and stay the way we've been in the past. He begins a process of transforming us. And that's part of the beautiful work of a family, a body of Christ that work together in a community of worship. That God will transform and change your lives together and He will use you in each other's lives in the process of transformation. Third, Paul talks about finding our place of service. This is one of those passages of Scripture that Paul gives to us, all these listings of spiritual gifts. In essence, as a body of Christ operating together, we die to self, we begin this process of being transformed, changed, discipled, to look more and more like Jesus, and we find ourselves within the body of Christ, finding our place to serve Christ within the body. And then finally, and I take this as a heading, we will learn to love without hypocrisy. What happens in this place, the Spirit of God is at work in this congregation And He will teach us how to love one another. He will sanctify us together as He works into our lives. And He will use us to grow us to be the body of Christ. And so there is this list of 25 imperatives. Can you imagine that? Paul Paul is amazing sometimes. 25 imperatives of things that are to happen in our lives if we're going to love the way God wants us to love. So let's start this journey together, beginning with that first one. We will die to self. You see it right in the very first verse. Paul writes, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. When we begin, Paul talks about this concept. We, we, we recognize from our Old Testament studies that sacrifices weren't living, they were dead. And there is the quandary of what it means to be a living sacrifice, to live out our lives as dead men to ourselves, transformed by the, by the image of Christ in us. Christ lives in us and through us. It's by His grace and by His mercies that we are able to live our lives in that way in an acceptable fashion before God. But we literally have to do what is almost impossible, and that is to set aside our own preferences, our own desires, and our own self to let Christ rule and reign in our lives. It is a lifetime of transformation to die to self. In fact, the the older I get, the more aware of how much of who I am is in rebellion against God constantly stretching against God's ways and patterns, and I hear voices in my mind, and I think things to myself that I know are not God's ways and have to be brought under control, I literally have to ultimately come to the point of dying to self. He goes on in verse 3, and he gives us kind of, we'll come back to verse 2, but he follows up verse 1 with a little bit of an explanation. In verse 3, he says, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment. When you and I die to self, we, we quit thinking that we really are somebody. We quit thinking that we're important. We quit these little petty arguments in our minds that are always positioning to make sure that we're higher in the pecking order or we're better than somebody. All of that has to change and die out. All that we are of any value is a gift from the Lord, as he'll go on to explain even more in chapter 12. And what he has given, we surely can't think highly of ourselves because he's done it by grace in our lives. 
He has changed us and transformed us and He has made us valuable because we are His children. Not in our own essence and our own self-value. We literally have to die to self. That's why we see Paul say this in so many, many ways. If we had time, we could look at many different passages of Scripture. But here in Galatians 2.20, one of those texts that is so common and so well known in our minds, I have been crucified with Christ, Paul says, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Paul was understanding that. Paul, as a leader and as a theologian, he could have bragged about all of his accomplishments and all that he understood, and he wrote half of the New Testament, but even Paul understood that he had been crucified. And that Christ lived through him. The life I live by the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And so as a body of Christ, we begin with that process of dying to ourselves. We see Jesus tell us that in Luke. And we also get it a couple of points in the Gospels where he reminds us, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Paul one time said in 1 Corinthians 15, just as a side comment, I die every day. And man, I can really identify with that. To be within the body of Christ, to live in fellowship and harmony and to be pressing forward to become like Christ, we do. We literally have to die every day. And it becomes more apparent when we gather as a body of Christ. Because we are literally, like I like to tell Emmanuel here in town, we're like a bunch of a bunch of porcupines. We get very close to each other, we prick each other, and it hurts. We're like five-year-old boys that are always prepping each other and poking each other and jockeying for position. And in the church, we have to put that aside and die, literally die to ourselves. I had one dear lady in in the church in Iowa that I pastored, and I, I wrote this down the Sunday she said it because it was so perfect. She said, I decided a long time ago I wasn't going to be offended. You can't offend a dead person. I like that. You can't offend a dead person. A lot of the stuff that destroys churches is people jockeying for recognition and position, and when they don't get that, they, have, they literally tear a family apart as a process of trying to exalt self. When the church is all about Jesus Christ and about us dying to self, get this, even this is not about you. Redemption City Church is not about Pastor Jake or Pastor Adam. Redemption City Church is about Jesus Christ. And the sooner we learn to die to self, the better off we'll understand what God wants to do here in this place. Because this church is about the Lord Jesus Christ. Have you read your own papers? The, the purpose of Redemption City Church is to glorify God through the redemption of His creation in Christ. That's, a, that's, a, that's well done, guys. Because everything that we're about is the glory of God. But one of the most powerful things that happens in, in the church is when we lead people into a relationship with Christ, God is glorified. In the midst of that, we live out the purpose of this church is to glorify God through the redemption of his creation in Christ. Nowhere in there does it say it's about any one person. I've traveled extensively around the country and I cannot believe going 
from community to community. You can find churches that are Jones Memorial Church. Are you serious? People name churches after themselves. This church is about Jesus Christ. And so Paul reminds us that first we have to die to self. Secondly, we will be transformed. And I, and I like this. The Lord has to teach us to die before he can teach us to live. Chew on that for a second. You're not ready to be transformed by the Spirit of God until you're ready to die to yourself. And so Paul leads us into that in this second verse. And this is the second point. We will be transformed. He says in verse 2, and you know this well, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. You see, the, the, the clear truth of the Scriptures is it is God's intention that we become more like Jesus. More like Jesus. That's, that's what He desires in us. And ultimately, one day when we see Him face to face, we will finally be like Jesus. But in this world, it's a daily struggle of following after Christ, dying to self, and being transformed by the Spirit of God. I, I like to think of it in this way. It's really quite true that we need a lobotomy. It, it would be nice if God could just open up our cranium, pull this old sinful brain out of our minds, and replace it with the mind of Christ. But He doesn't do that. He works in us through the power of His Word and His Spirit to transform us and to renew us and to change our way of thinking. We have to be rewired. Are any of you, are, do any of you realize that your own mind works against you in a thousand ways of rebellion? And that the only way that we can take captive that, those thoughts that are yanking through our mind and pulling us off into rebellion is to submit them to Christ and to His Word and to allow Him to transform us and to change us. To be able to really see what's good and pleasing and what really matters. I used to, used to take care of pipe organs. We used to build pipe organs. And one time we were in Columbia, Missouri, and we stopped by this Episcopal church, and on the outside, it was one of these old buildings that was, at, you could tell it was magnificent, but it was, it was in deep decay. The, the stone was black, and the windows were black, and it was ugly, quite honestly, from the outside until you went inside the building and then you looked outside Tiffany stained glass windows. Unbelievable beauty. From the outside, they didn't show anything. But from the inside, you could amazingly see the artistry and the glory of the glass. That's the way it is in living a Christian life. Is From the outside to the world, this doesn't look like a great game, does it? But for those of us that know Christ and can see it from the inside and the transformation that He's bringing about in our lives and we see the glory of God at work in us, we can get excited about that because things are dramatically different once we are in the process of being transformed by the Spirit of God. The word is transformation and he puts it up against this, this concept of co uh, being conformed to the world. Transformed is what my wife is about right now. Uh, we, we have milkweed all over in my backyard. I, I just hate it. We've got hundreds of milkweeds sticking up through all the flowers that we've laboriously put in our yard, uh, out in the grass, because my wife is hatching uh, monarch butterflies every year. She's just really into that. And the process of the, that the monarch goes through is the word that we have here, this transformation process, this, this kind of 
little egg that you have to really look for and to see it grow through certain stages and ultimately turn into a magnificent butterfly that you could have never imagined. Even when it was this gooey little caterpillar moving around in the cage. God is like that in our lives. He takes the raw material of us in our rebellion and He begins to transform us and change us into the beauty and the glory of Christ. He's about that in our hearts, in our lives. And as we gather together as the people of God, He transforms us and changes us. In 2 Corinthians 3.18, Paul says, And we are being transformed into His likeness with ever-increasing glory. With ever-increasing glory. Cleo and I were talking a minute ago about just being a little bit older down the line and see, looking back and seeing the glory of the Lord even in the dark times of our lives and how a little perspective begins to build as we trust in the Lord even in the midst of times that seem to be so completely out of control. And then 20 years later, 30 years later, you're looking back and you see God shining the brightest in those moments in our lives and doing this incredible process of transformation in us as He makes us more and more like Jesus. Or in 1 John chapter 3, 2-3, Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. Everyone has this hope in Him, purifies Himself just as He is pure. That's where we're heading, is God works out that transformation process in our lives. I found that in my own life, I can, I can kind of sense where I'm at in this journey of transformation by looking at my own attitudes. When my attitudes are out of whack, when I'm on edge, when I'm angry, when I'm rebellious, when I don't like what's going on, when I'm worried, when I'm concerned, these, it's a thermometer revealing the temperature of my heart and my sense of rebellion in my own life with what God is, hap- what, what God is bringing into my life at that time. We have to be careful and allow the Spirit of God to work in us through His Word. It's His desire to transform us and change us. Let's hurry on. The third thing in this passage is we will find our place of service. So we die to self, we are being transformed, and then finally we will find our place of service. You know, until, until I kind of, I, I have to admit to you that for many years I would look at this passage of Scripture like, like I think most pastors do. They go grab verses 1 and 2. Because it's great preaching material. And then they separate it off from the rest of the the chapter and they miss the point. All this fits together. This is not an accident that Paul takes us on this journey from dying to being transformed. Now he's going to start talking about what is it that you're going to do within the body of Christ? You're a new church here in this place. God is drawing you here together for a reason. What is it that He's bringing to the table with you and your life and the process of following Jesus that He's going to use here in the life of this congregation? And so Paul picks up on that. We'll find our place of service. And we have, we have four slides of Scripture here that really just give us this basic information. Beginning in verse 3, again, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. That God has given us this. He's assigned this to us. And Paul makes that really clear in other places as well. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. 
Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. In other words, just just to put it as bluntly as possible, find your place of service. Find the place that God has gifted you to serve, not just the body, but the gospel in this community. Find that place. I'm not suggesting that this is like going for an Easter egg search where you get out and you start to look for something. God begins to work in our lives. He will speak to the people around you. He will use you in certain ways. You'll see these things begin to happen that He calls you into. And He'll reveal to you His plans and His purposes for your life. He'll use the leadership of the church to help you find that spot. To be able to take those gifts that God has given and find the direction not just for you, but for the body of Christ as well. Paul's list here in this passage just barely touches it. We find it over and over again, but probably the most extensive list is found in 1 Corinthians 13, where he talks about these spiritual gifts. First of all, he says, all believers have a spiritual gift. Secondly, they are given for the benefit of the body. Not for your benefit, but for the benefit of the body. The Spirit determines who gets what gift. Are you, are you beginning to understand why he says we can't brag or take pride or be arrogant in the gifts that we have because God gave them to us. There is a unity of purpose to all of the giftedness of the body. These gifts are interdependent and they are to be exercised in love. The giftedness of the body is for the body, not for us. This church doesn't exist so that Jake and Adam can show off their flashy preaching skills, although God's going to use them in some incredible ways. This church doesn't exist for a fantastic worship team. This church exists for the glory of God. We've already made that clear. But He will use all of you in this process to fill out the functions of the body so that this congregation can have dramatic effect for the gospel of Jesus Christ here in this community. When you look at Paul's listing, there's just way too many to cover. It's always easy to remember if you want spiritual gifts, you want to talk about spiritual gifts, Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12. Paul's lists in those two passages are, are, are many, but they're not exactly the same. Paul never intended for us to think that he mentioned every one of them. Or again, in Ephesians chapter 4, he talks about, about a set of spiritual gifts that are there. And then there are others that are spread around in Paul's writings. Celibacy, hospitality, martyrdom. That's not one usually we line up for. Missionary and voluntary poverty. Those are even listed in the writings of the New Testament. So there are many ways God can use you and equip you and call you to serve the body of Christ. And He'll make that abundantly clear as you continue to serve here in this place. As a pastor, I've always leaned in to this acronym, SHAPE. When, when I think about what it is, every time somebody joins the congregation, I know God's doing something new. Because he wouldn't bring us people that he's not going to use. It wouldn't impact our lives. And so I begin to try as a pastor to shepherd them and to see where it is that they fit within the body of Christ. And this acronym SHAPE often helps with that. What is their apparent spiritual gift? The longer you know somebody, it doesn't take long, you begin to see some of that. I had a guy, uh, just very brief story, not to get too far off track, but I had a guy say he, he thought his spiritual gift was ministering to people in the hospital. 
And so I sent him to the hospital. We talked about it. We tried to do some training, and I sent him off to the hospital. And he visited with this lady that had just had a heart attack, and uh, and then uh, it prayed with her. And when he when he came back, I said, "So what did you what did you say to her?" And he says, "Well, I I told her that my my uncle had a heart attack just like this." And I said, "Did she ask you any questions about that?" And he said, "Yes, she asked me how he was doing." And what, I said, "What did you say?" He said, well, he died two weeks after that. There are some things that we think we are that we don't, we don't have. It, it, the people around us will help us understand what our spiritual gifts are. What is our heart or our passion? God is not the cosmic killjoy. Many times he wants to give us the desires of our heart and he will use our passions within the body of Christ. What are you passionate about? What are your abilities Somebody's parents probably made them play the piano, play the violin, play, play the guitar, made them do that. Now those abilities that have been passed on are valuable to the body. And God put them there even before you knew you would ever use them in this way. What's your personality? I constantly fight the battle of, you know, every church has got greeters. The guy that grunts and moans is not a good greeter. I'm sorry. I've, I've been to some of the, the, the churches that say that they're the best at greeting people, and I've, I've gone through the door and had people stick a bulletin in my hand and grunt at me. That guy shouldn't be a greeter. doesn't have the personality for that. Personality can be a part of that. And then what are your experiences? God never wastes our pain. And you may be carrying some pain here in this place, or you may have had some experience in your past, and God's going to use that in the lives of others on down the line. And he's brought you here to fill out this place as a body of Christ. It's a lot like just finding a career choice. God kind of step by step takes us to the right place and accomplishes in us what he wants. When I was a five-year-old boy, I wanted to be a Texaco man. man that was, that was, that's what I wanted worse than anything else, to be a Texaco man. By the time I got into high school, I wanted, I wanted to be a pilot. Because my dad was in the Air Force, and I, I got all my paperwork, and I had an appointment to the Air Force Academy by the senator and by my congressman. I had done everything, had everything in place, and then failed the physical because I ripped my knee in a basketball game. I still had puffiness on it and didn't get to go. God was directing and moving me. I went off to college, couldn't figure out what in the world I was going to do. Without hearing from God and trying and asking, God just didn't respond. Anybody ever had time like that? And God just didn't seem to respond? And so I end up getting an investment in portfolio analysis degree, financial management. Never used it. Never used it. Because by the time I was done with college, God had called me to ministry. I went to seminary, came back, and started pastoring a small church. For many years in my life, I looked at the fact, why did I go and get a four-year degree in financial management and analysis? Absolutely a wasted idea until God calls me to Rochester, Minnesota, where part of my job is to manage a foundation and it involves me on a daily basis in investments and portfolio analysis. God did things in the past I would have never understood to bring me where he needed me to be today to serve in the capacity that he wanted me to serve. He's doing that in your life too. And one of the most incredible and wonderful things about being a new church is many of you will rise in this place to serve the ways that God has gifted you, and you wouldn't have done it wherever else you came from before. 
Because now it's obvious the congregation needs you and God's doing a fresh thing in your life. He's prepared you for this place in this time. Now finally, the last thing is the whole end of this chapter. If we die to self, if we are being transformed and we find our place of service, nothing is more exciting than a church that loves each other. And the love of Christ is apparent and visible in the congregation. And so when I look at this passage of Scripture... I see a heading in verse 9 that really could be a heading for everything else that follows. Let love be genuine. Or to take a more literal reading of it, it would be, we will love without hypocrisy. Without any hypocrisy, we'll love. That's an amazing thing. And yet that's what Paul is pushing for here in this passage of Scripture. His call is for us to be people who love each other. And then he gives these 25 imperatives or these exhortations that we're going to see here that help us understand what that looks like. And so here's what I want us to do as we close this passage of Scripture because the Word of God will speak for itself right here. Will you stand with me? We're going to read the Scripture off the screen. And I will, I will do the repetitious part, the part that is brainless. I will say that we will love without hypocrisy at every screen, and you will together with me read the Scripture. We'll pause. Let God speak to our hearts with the gravity of what His Word reveals to us and what it says to us is a body that's just about to step forward and covenant together. So together, I, I will begin with the phrase and then you read the Scripture. We will love without hypocrisy. Oh, I forgot I did this. <laughs> it was a late night last night when I got back from the wedding. Uh, John uh, MacArthur says, These are basic characteristics of supernatural Christian life. They show us what love is, Tim Keller says, and then I just say it this way, this is what love looks like if it's lived out in, in this place. That's the last interruption we've got. We will love without hypocrisy. 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 
We will love without hypocrisy. We will love without hypocrisy. And then say it with me. Love must be without hypocrisy. You see, God's Word, would you, would you want to be a part of a church like that? Do you want to be that kind of church? I think that's God's plan for what church looks like and what it's supposed to be. You can be seated, and we're almost done. And so as we covenant together... And one of the pastors will bring an exclamation of this. From the Word of God, we are covenanting to die to self. We are covenanting that we will be transformed, that we'll find our place within the body of Christ, and we will love without hypocrisy. That's what brings us here to this place. Let me just tell a brief story. Uh, it's been 1994. It was the third year of the time that I was pastoring in Iowa. And uh, back in those days, we used to do spiritual renewal meetings. So once a year at least, we would set aside a week, we'd ask a speaker to come in, and, and uh, we would do an emphasis as a congregation. Part of it would be evangelistic, other parts would just be to, to kind of repair uh, any wrongs within the body of Christ. And we always planned for speakers to come in during that time. I got a phone call from a guy that had decimated our church about three and a half, four years before that. And he was, at first the call was so emotional, I couldn't understand what he said to me. He was crying so deeply I had to get him settled down before I could understand what he was asking. And what he said is, Pastor Leo, I, I, God has burdened my heart so much that, he, that I, I really sense that until I take care of the wrongs that I did to some of the people at your church, he's going to have nothing to do with me spiritually. He's going to lock me out. And so he said, do I have your permission to talk to those people that I wronged four, three, four years before? It didn't take me long to say, of course, and let me pray for you. And so I did. I prayed for him, and in a few, I don't know, maybe a week and a half or so later, he called me back up, and he felt a, just a relief and a sense of, of, of unity that had come with, with that, of having tried to, to set some things right. Only one family really wasn't receptive to that. They were marginal in our church as it, as it was. And as I got ready to hang up the phone, if you've ever had one of those times where you felt like God gave you a thought, you, never, you don't hear it audibly, but you came out of nowhere and it's hard to understand why it would have been there. I got this sense in which, ask him to share about what he was sensing in his life and the freedom that he feels now after having got right. And so I thought, my next thought was, oh man, I'll have to deal with those people that are still angry at him, that one, that one couple. But I almost as quickly had this conversation with God. It's like, uh, you can have another set of meetings, or I can show up and do something. It wasn't quite that clear, obviously. And so I did. I asked him to come, and he spoke at our church one of those nights. The former pastor that had been there prior to the split was the person that I had invited to come and speak. And he was preaching that night when I invited this man to come and bear his testimony. And at the end of his testimony, it was kind of like thud. I'm sitting on the front pew about where I was earlier, and Orville was sitting right next to me, the previous pastor, and it was one of those rare moments when, as pastors, we kept our mouth shut. Uh, I felt like somebody ought to say something, but I, didn't, I just felt like I felt like God put his hand over my mouth and said it wasn't going to be me. 
And Orville, who was my senior by 25 or 30 years, afterwards, he was in the same place I was. You know, he, he always had the right thing to say. You know, you, some pastors are gifted like that. I thought maybe he would come to our aid, but he didn't get up and say anything either. And he sensed that God didn't want him to say anything. And so that night I went home with this sense of unfinished business. You know, it was like there was a near miss. Something was supposed to happen, but it didn't happen. The next morning I get up and I get this call from one of my deacons. And he is upset. He's so upset that I'm having trouble understanding him. And finally he says in a way that I can hear him, somebody should have said something last night. Somebody should have said something last night. He said, at 2 o'clock in the morning, I finally realized God said it was me. I should have said something. The, the deacon. And so he says, Pastor, what do I do? And I said, uh, well, let's have him back. And you respond. And so two nights later, he came back. And this man who claimed that he should have said something did respond. And he took responsibility for his part in the split of the church and all that had taken place. I don't have a clue what the sermon was on that night. I don't have a clue what the sermon was on that night. But in those meetings, we always had an altar call. And it went on for an hour and a half of people that didn't even know anything about this. They were, it was a different congregation by that point. They were getting right with God and being changed and being transformed. It reset our congregation. And over the course of the next uh, eight years, we grew by almost ten times the size that we had been prior to that. Because for a period of time, the congregation looked just a little bit like the picture that Paul has given us here in this passage of Scripture. If you want to see God do something amazing in your midst, it's be the church. Be the church the way God designed it, by His plan and for His purposes. We at Emmanuel are praying for you, that you will be that church, that you will see the hand of God do amazing things here in this place, above and beyond anything that you could think or imagine today. But it will happen in moments like this, where we covenant together and then we live that out in our lives, dying to self, being transformed, finding our place of service, and then loving each other and the world around us without hypocrisy. Pastor? Let's pray together. God, I am so humbled by this day, by this room full of your people that you have gathered together from around the country, around the world, to covenant together today as Redemption City Church. Many of us have looked forward to this day for many months, for years even. And I couldn't imagine how faithful you would be to bring us to this point. And I thank you. I thank you for partnership with Jake and the way he covers my weaknesses. I thank you for Leo and Cleon and Steve and Kenny and the ways that they have their fingerprints all over this work. God, I thank You so much for all of those who have been with us for so long already and com are committing to be with us into the future. The Oppermans and the Dolls and the Amundsons and the Amundsons and the Lenses 
and Garrison and Matthew and Joe and the Parks and the Robertsons and Regners and Matsons and Exteds and Haley and the Hops and those who have shown up more recently and said, I want to help. I want to grow with you. God, you have done an amazing work and I am humbled. And today we gather together to covenant together. What a humbling work in our heart that is, that we would submit ourselves to one another. That Jake and I could join with these people, not as their leaders, but as their brothers. God, help us. Help us now. May this moment be significant, not just because we sign a piece of paper or because we stand up and walk to the front, but because we have committed our hearts to one another. God, help us love one another without hypocrisy. Using our gifts in the special way You have crafted us to love one another. You have transformed us, God, to make us into a new, useful part of the body so that we could love one another. You killed off our old self, transformed us into a marvelous new light so we could delight in You and use our new life to serve one another, God. All of that to show that we have died in Christ and we have been raised to life in Him. Help us from this day forward to glorify our Savior, to represent Him well, to be His body, His hands, His feet, His prophetic mouth to the world that others may be drawn in to Your people and glorify You forever. Amen.